Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways in which the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. In today's episode, I will be speaking with renowned educator and architect, Mohsen Mostafavi. Together, we will delve into the rich tapestry of Japan's social and physical environments, exploring their historical underpinnings, current practices, and future possibilities. Throughout its history, the Japanese city has served as a complex canvas for a multitude of influences and aspirations. Our discussion will explore how these forces have left their marks on the urban landscape and what the future of the Japanese city may look like. But before beginning my conversation, I would like to share with you a little bit more about my guest. Mohsen Mostafavi is currently the Alexander and Victoria Wiley Professor of Design and Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor. He also served as the Dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Design from 2008 to 2019. His work focuses on modes and processes of urbanization and on the interface between technology and aesthetics. He was formerly the Dean of the College of Architecture, Art and Planning at Cornell University, where he also served as the author and Isabel Weisenberger Professor in Architecture. Previously, he was the chairman of the Architectural Association School of Architecture in London. Mohsen studied architecture at the AA and also undertook research on counter-reformation urban history at the Universities of Essex and Cambridge. He's a trustee of Smith College and an honorary trustee of the Norman Foster Foundation and has served on the boards of the Van Allen Institute as well as the steering committee and the jury of the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. His research and design projects have been published in numerous journals, and he's authored or co-authored more than a dozen books, including Landscape Urbanism, A Manual for the Machinic Landscape, Ecological Urbanism, that he co-edited with Gareth Doherty, and which was recently translated into Chinese, Portuguese, and Spanish. He wrote In the Life of Cities, also Ethics of the Urban, the City, and the Spaces of the Political, and most recently, he has authored Sharing Tokyo, Artifice and the Social World, and has a forthcoming book entitled Reinventing Japan. Welcome to On Cities, Mosin. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. In preparing for this conversation, Mosin, I came across the writings of a British travel writer, Robert Byron who described Isfahan as follows. He argued that it's among those rare places like Athens or Rome, which are the common refreshment of humanity. He described the city as one that could rival the marvelous churches and domes of Florence and overwhelm you with its transcendental beauty. Mohsen, you were born in Isfahan. Can you describe your early memories of this city with our listeners? Well, that sounds wonderful, Gary. Um, yes, well, I left uh, Isfahan when I was a teenager. So in a way, uh, my, uh, my memories of the city are filled with uh, nostalgia, with uh, very specific things. So 
in terms of the city um, describing it, uh, it's interesting to imagine a very wide boulevard, not unlike the Ramblas in Barcelona or you know, some people have called it the Champs-Élysées of the Middle East. I think that's probably a little bit uh, um, over the top. But I, but I think I often think about the Ramblas actually as a as an interesting comparison. Um, so it's a wide avenue with uh, with lots of trees and people promenading down up and down this road. And the road, this this wide avenue, leads to a river, uh, which at one point was uh, was quite uh, quite active and vibrant. And again, people being around there. Nearby, there is a there is a park, uh, which um, has a wonderful pavilion in it. This pavilion is called Chehel Sotun which in Farsi means 40 columns, but actually it's got 20 columns. But because it has a pool right in front of the pavilion with the reflections, it's always referred to as the pavilion of 40 columns. Nearby, there is a a really big square. It's called the Maidan. And uh, it's something like uh, 500 meters or more long. And it used to be a place where people played polo in the 17th century, most of these um, constructions, the development, the evolution of the city is from the 17th century. It's referred to as the Safavid period. And uh, around this uh, big uh, Maidan, this big square, uh, there are a couple of churches, one very, very beautiful, small, I'm uh, sorry, churches, uh, mosques, one very small one, which used to be the um, private mosque, of the royal family, uh, which is which is pretty special, and a um, and a bazaar. So it's really the hub of the center of the city. So imagine the city in terms of boulevards, uh, big squares, and uh, somehow special buildings um, that are used as viewing platforms, places to kind of let's say watch the watch the polo. Um, I, of course, also remember the city very well in terms of uh, the school that I went to. I went to uh, an Anglican, a school that belonged to the Anglican Church. And so that was also an unusual thing to be in the school where we had uh, um, Farsi half the day and English the other half of the day, but also next door to this uh, Anglican Church. Um, So these are some of the things that I that I that I remember. Um, one last thing that I should probably mention is that um, we lived um, in an area called Jolfa, which is the Armenian um, district. And probably many people don't know that during again the 17th century, there was a very large Armenian community that were established in the southern part of the city with many many uh, church buildings in that area. So. That's also uh, one of the key kind of characteristics and features of uh, of the city. You know, I find it um, beautiful because in describing uh, Isfahan, you focused much of the answer on the public realm. Um, and so, you know, the sort of collective spaces of gathering and how they seem to not only be a destination for tourists, but a part of the daily life of the citizen of Isfahan. And I, I also... Um, found the answer uh, poignant because it seems like you had an upbringing that was also kind of multicultural, certainly different religions, different cultures. And I th- I can see how this 
may have later played out in your in your career, actually, and also in many of your writings, which focus broadly on the city, there is quite a bit of focus on on the public realm. Certainly, we're going to talk about that today. But but I found it beautiful that um, that what you would concentrate on was largely not the private, but actually the collective spaces of Isfahan. So now I, I have the desire to to go and see them myself. Yes, no, I think it would be, I mean, it's a pity I haven't been there for a very long time, but but that's why I said this this point about the nostalgia of kind of remembering. And also the fact that even the main boulevard, these boulevards, not unlike the Ramblas, they're always connected with questions of nature. And the the the, the big boulevard is called Char Bog, which means the four gardens. So there's there's always this kind of connection also to to gardens and landscape and the kind of in, intermixing of the two, which I which I also hadn't really thought about until you asked me the question. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, you left Iran um, to study, uh, and later you, of course, to pursue a successful career in the West. So, as an influential and lifelong educator, I'm curious, Mosin, about who you feel have been your most important mentors and perhaps what lessons they taught you. Yeah, this is such an ex- interesting question. You know, because I was very young um, when I when I left, and, and I was alone. You know, I lived alone uh, for the first few years. Um, so just um, that whole experience of sort of um, thinking about what you want to make of your life and where are you going and you know what you want to study. I think the the and, and you know who are the people is is a is a is a really interesting question. Uh, when I started school, uh, architecture school, I think uh, there were a few people who were very important. One person who has really been very um, significant for me um, was one one of my one of my professors. His name is, is Dalibor Vesely. Uh, he was originally from Prague. Uh, um, he passed away some years ago. But very interesting person um, because he he escaped, um, uh, you know, in the 1960s um, from uh, from uh, Czechoslovakia at that time. It was before the separation of uh, Czech and Slovakia, and uh, and he was incredibly um, interesting and smart. Had studied engineering, architecture, but. Um, he was um, incredibly knowledgeable about philosophy, uh, especially the, 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 the sort of writings of uh, French philosophers and German um, philosophers uh, of the 20th century. A lot of phenomenologists and, and you know, people like Paul Ricoeur and uh, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty and things like this. So it was it was a wonderful thing to be to be in the company of someone who. Who obviously had a very deep knowledge uh, at the intersection of architecture, urbanism, and philosophy. Um, I later uh, did graduate work, as as you mentioned, at the University of Essex, and uh, had both this uh, this uh, Czech professor, but also uh, another um, uh, another professor, dear friend and colleague who 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 is still um, with us. Uh, um, his name is Joseph Rickwert. He's also from uh, Poland. And he um, uh, was really someone who um, understood very well the relationship between architecture and anthropology of how people live. And uh, 
he wrote a very interesting book called The Idea of the City, or The Idea of the Town, actually, The Idea of the Town. And um, I, um, I, I helped uh, w- with one of the publications in terms of images and, and taking photographs called The First Moderns. He was very interested in, you know, how did we, when was the beginning of modernity, in a way. So I think between these two people, I had a combination of architecture, philosophy, anthropology, and and in a way, visual culture, questions of perception, how we look at things, uh, were, were deeply influential in some ways. Later on, I would say, coming to the States, uh, the Spanish architect Rafael Moneo uh, was someone that uh, I had met in Europe before moving to uh, the US and found him as as someone who combined this understanding of design and thinking, something very, um, very valuable. Um, and for me, seemed like a continuation of the work of other people that I, I didn't really know and I hadn't met other Italian, um, other, um, another Italian um, um, architect and, and, uh, and writer, Aldo Rossi, for example, this is the kind of generation that I think was influential for us. And, and the main thing really is that these, these people thought and understood the relationship between architecture and the city. And, uh, and that's something that I think has changed slightly in terms of architectural education and what we emphasize. And how in- so? Like, what would you say that we emphasize today that I is different? I- I think that in the 19, um, 1970s and 80s, uh, there was still a very strong feeling that what we do and what we build is in relation to a particular set of issues and in, is in relation to a context. Um, I think that uh, with the evolution of um, technology, the way that we use computers, uh, the 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 enhancement of of digital culture. I think schools um, also moved more towards uh, technology and the teaching of technology. And and in some ways, um, digital culture or digital technologies produce their own culture in some ways. And I think they've had, or at one point, they had a significant impact. I think that impact is changing. Um, But for example, in the 19... 90s and the 2000s, I think this was a very important part of um, of uh, design education. Um, and in some ways, that also then affects the training of the future teachers. And so this is one of the reasons that I've, I've thought could be utilized in a way to account for the fact that there has been a kind of shift away um, from cities, we're going back there again. I think there is a lot more emphasis on the question of habitat, where we live, how we live, the environment more broadly, the care for that, and that's uh, that's very significant. But I think we've gone through a period where, you know, it's been harder, for example, for institutions in terms of their faculty, in terms of the direction of pedagogy, to emphasize this relationship between architecture and the built environment, or architecture and the city. 
Yeah. And perhaps it has to do with this um, kind of desire for hyper-specialization. And in you recalling your mentors, what I also found interesting is that these were individuals with great breadth and depth. Um, and I think that when you understand the relationship between architecture and the building of cities, I think you have to have um, kind of large breadth and context um, and perhaps also a, a little bit of humility to understand that, um, you know, what your role is in the building of cities and perhaps um, in hearing you say this, it's one of the reasons why I was interested in pursuing this show, um, because I do believe that the most um, sustainable and long-standing impact that we can have as architects and urban thinkers and designers is really the building of our cities and what type of cities we're leaving for future generations. So um, I, I think it's 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 a fundamental question that should really be at the center of architectural education today. So thank you for that. Um, so maybe kind of pivoting to your role as not only an influential educator, but also um, as a leader within uh, notable institutions. You know, you were the dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Design, as I mentioned earlier, but also the chair of the AA and the dean at Cornell. And in these positions, you initiated a series of innovative programs and research efforts. Um, these initiatives um, are broad and they range from influential books, including landscape urbanism and ecological ur urbanism, but also research on the future of the American city and your ongoing work on the Japanese city, which is where we're going to focus um, uh, today's conversation. But before delving into the questions of Japan, what would you say are the underlying themes that unite this work or your work? I think in the introduction, you mentioned a couple of things and 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 maybe um, uh, as far as my own work is concerned, it's probably been um, divided into two interrelated domains. Uh, the first one is really um, the work that focuses on architecture and uh, and publications and, and research that really look at uh, how is it that we think about design? How do we imagine? What are the, what are the mechanisms, means, and how do we perceive uh, the, the, the things, the artifacts, the buildings, that are around us. So uh, books like On Weathering or Surface Architecture, in some ways, deal with this question of the mode, how, how, how something is made, for example, the relationship between industrialization and design, individual buildings, and their, the way in which they are affected by the industrial processes. And also, the way in which they're situated, like their temporal dimension, for example, duration, which is the impact of the weather on buildings and how these things are uh, at once, you know, negative things. You don't want your buildings to be to be deteriorating in a way. But at the same time, ironically, how certain forms of weathering improve the aesthetics, the, the, the way something um, uh, looks. Um, there is the, the there is the reference to the concept of of uh, you know age value, for example, in in the West as something that's appreciated. We often appreciate old things, but I think the weather uh, has had this kind of aesthetic impact. So one line of, of of work is like books related to architecture, production, perception, that plan. and 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 you know, in addition to let's say the weathering surface, I would mention books about the American architect John Portman um, and his work, or the 17th, 18th century British architect, uh, 
you know, Hawksmore, Nicholas Hawksmore, things like that. But uh, for the for today's um, conversation, you know, the 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 other the main part of my interest has been to focus on questions of urbanization and really the interrelationship between territory, social, um, economic, political realities that um, that affect the lives of people. So these things really are are ultimately about the interrelationship between design, urbanization, and society. That's like the, the, the broad thing. I think at the level at an institutional level, uh, what is what is interesting is that um, you know institutions also have certain modes of practice. They how do they work? How can they contribute to society? And in some ways, what is it that we are teaching? What's the what's the focus of what we are doing? Topics like architecture on one level are a form of uh, in their discipline and a practice, but they can also be broad. Um, so one of the things that I've tried to do in the context of different um, institutions is to bring about various forms of focus uh, topics. You could call it specialization, but it's really domains that matter to contemporary societies. So in London, we established you know, programs like emergent technology and design, or like this landscape urbanism that you mentioned. There are, there are others. Um, at Harvard, I think, for example, it's very important for an institution like Harvard to utilize its very, very strong professional schools. And therefore, the intersection between the professional schools was something very important for me. And we established a master's in design engineering, which really um, tries to explore the, the relationship between design and engineering to, to address, to solve big picture problems related to cities, for example, related to urbanization. How can we help in the context of African cities or the scarcity of water? And these are also design, a lot of these things are design uh, questions. So I, I think um, in, 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 in conclusion, I think that the, the, the point is really that the interrelationship between pedagogy, research, and societal issues it has been very important for me. And I think they're, they're, they're very important for many academic institutions, not only to see it as training, but really to study in a way that will inspire people to want to contribute to to society more broadly than just like design objects, which is super important. But what is the role of these objects? Within what kind of context are these objects produced and what impact do they have? I think this has been one of the things that I've tried to do as uh, someone involved in administration or the, the kind of organization of, uh, of academia. Yeah, and I hear in your answer the desire to not keep these kind of intellectual pursuits in a, an ivory tower, um, but to actually seek ways to uh, bridge academia and maybe the implementation of these projects in practice so that um, there could be value added. So there's a kind of dialogue between, let's say, the world of academia and the world of practice, which I, I don't think is off, always the case, you know, but I hear this um, in your answer. So, and, and it's certainly something that resonates with me. I think that's, that's, that's really super important. And I'm so glad that you, 
you mentioned it because a lot of times people feel that um, academic environments are too abstract. They don't, what's their relevance? What are they doing? And I think it's, it's, it's really necessary for, for institutions to be explicit about their contribution to the greater good, to society, and not to just see that as, uh, as, um, as pragmatism. Uh, so, and, and, and in order for that to happen, that also means that uh, the students who study at academic institutions have to be engaged with the world they have to experience. So, I mean, part of the responsibility of, of uh, let's say, an institution like the GSD for me was for the students to be out there, to be traveling and visiting uh, places. So um, that that also gives them a different kind of perspective about life. Yes. Well, let's turn to one of these themes um, to squarely focus on the topic of the Japanese city, um, which I guess is the central focus of the conversation. So your book, Sharing Tokyo, Artifice and the Social World, focuses on the fascinating megalopolis of Tokyo. With a population of nearly 45 million, uh, the greater metropolitan, metropolitan area of Tokyo is one of the largest urban centers in the world. And yet, there has been very few publications, at least in the Western world, dedicated to the urban history of Tokyo. So, Mosin, could you briefly describe the urban history of Tokyo for our listeners? Wow. Uh, yeah. Tokyo is such a, such a fantastic uh, city to, to visit and, and f- I think for many people to, to live in. As you mentioned, it's a very, very uh, large city, uh, and it's often very hard to imagine the scale of the of the city uh, in terms of uh, how 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 big it is. Um, but um, uh, but I think it's it's a city that's a feudal city. It's a castle city, and that is one of the key characteristics that remain. So maybe we can discuss this uh, uh, later on as well. Well, actually, maybe um, since there's so much to be said on this topic, Mosin, I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. Um, but when we return, we're going to give um, we're going to continue our conversations with Mosin Mostafavi, where we will delve deeper into the cultural, social, and urban life of Tokyo, one of the largest and most complex urban centers in the world. We will discuss what may be in store. Uh, for the future of the Japanese cities. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 
so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with renowned architect and educator Mohsen Mustafavi. Just before the break, we were beginning to delve into um, the topic of urbanization and the Japanese city. Um, and Mosin, we were talking about um, the urban structure of of a city like Tokyo, um, which can oftentimes seem overwhelming to many. So can you describe um, sort of the urban structure of Tokyo for our listeners? Sure. Um one thing that would be um, important for, for, for the listeners to imagine is that in the heart of Tokyo, there was, and still in some ways is because of the Imperial Palace, a castle town. And because Tokyo was, a, was, was not actually called Tokyo until the latter part of the 19th century, it was called Edo, as a feudal city, it was essentially a kind of defensive organization of the city and this castle town was where all the hierarchy affiliated with the military administration and running of the country uh, lived. Uh, Also, uh, this Japanese society was one that was related to land ownership and people who had large areas of land in in outside of, uh, of Tokyo also having their residences in the context of this elevated castle town, which was called the high city. The high city uh, of the castle town also was adjacent to the low city. That's where ordinary people lived. And low city didn't just mean poor people. It meant the people who, since the the feudal system, the the militaristic operation uh, had, had value, uh, a lot of people that today, in terms of our society, we would think of as being very, um, very, very much part of a kind of upper class, if there is such a thing, they were they would be living in the in the low city, and the structure of this low city is also um, a, somehow a form of a, a grid, uh, not unlike Kyoto, on top of the geography of uh, of Tokyo. 
uh, as well. So this this um, this notion of the of the feudal city still remains in Tokyo with a railway uh, line called the Yamanote line, which is a circular um, circular subway system, um, and this still preserves this this idea of the high city with this uh, with this circular uh, railway line that that existed, and uh, but. Edo, this uh, feudal city, changed uh, when the emperor, who used to live in Kyoto, was moved, was brought by people who then overthrew basically the feudal system in 1868 and the beginning of the Meiji Empire. And Japan started a a really massive uh, westernization process. And so Tokyo is also a city that has gone through an amazing period of westernization since the 1960s and it affected its evolution and its culture and its development and it's divided now into a series of wards or different uh districts uh there are 23 in the <clears throat> central part and i think um 39 outside so the greater um, metropolitan Tokyo is made up of these 62 uh, municipalities, which is run and organized. So it's a, it's a fascinating large-scale operation. Uh, the other uh, small point is that, uh, well, it's not a small point, but the city itself has always been expanding, but there has been a shortage of land. And one way for it to expand is to go into the water. And therefore, there's been a lot of land reclamation. So Tokyo is a city also of water and land reclamation, except today you don't really see much water uh, in Tokyo because a lot of the rivers and canals and waterways have been covered up uh, as a result of the developments that happened in the 1960s. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very special topography of uh Castle town, high city, low city, land reclamation, and then the kind of inner core of the city and the the sort of the outer boundaries of the city. So the inner core is about 14, 15 million people. And as you said, the the outer core, uh, the population has been shrinking a little bit, but it's still, you know, the largest population, uh, urban population on the planet, which is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, having had the opportunity to um, visit Tokyo multiple times, I can say it's an extraordinary place. And just to underscore what you said, um, these wards, if you will, um, are are referred to as kus uh, mm-hmm. in in Japan, and and they are in essence cities within cities. And just to give our listeners a sense of this, I mean, one of these kus can be as large as Central Amsterdam. And these are twenty three that you're describing originally. So um, even though it's a it's a it's a massive scale when you when you think. 45 million people, um, the way that urbanistically it's organized is the, each one of these, at least my experience, are is a city um, in and of itself. And so it's it's a kind of polycentric structure, um, which allows you to even live and work and, um, you know, live your life really within one of these coups. So there's a very interesting um, dyna- dynamism. Um, but maybe if if we continue to discuss um, the questions of Tokyo or maybe more broadly Japan, it can be said that um, the story of Japan is one of disruption and continuity, or, or better yet, it can be described as an ongoing tale of destruction and rebuilding. 
Um, Mosin, can you shed a little bit of light on this fascinating history and what maybe we can learn about the rebuilding of cities from the Japanese? Yeah, the, the Japan and especially Tokyo have a very interesting history in relation to, to destruction and rebuilding. Um, in the 20th century, the most famous um, example of this kind of large-scale destruction is an earthquake, which is called the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. It destroys everything, uh, really pretty much a very uh, large part of the of the physical environment. The Japanese, however, are very, very good at rebuilding. So they rebuild. And one of the uh, one of the um, methods or, or, or traits of rebuilding is that they often rebuild utilizing the existing pattern of development, what was there before. Uh, uh, unlike many utopian cities where there is a brand new vision that is implemented on a piece of land. In the case of Tokyo, you see this continuity between the traces of what is there and what reappears. So the Japanese rebuilt uh, after 1923. But um, the next major event is the 1945 firebombing by the Allied forces. And this, this firebombing, it's a Bomb bombing that also because of the fire, it destroys all the buildings. So if you look at images of Tokyo after 1945, you see basically vast, vast territories of flatland with the odd, you know, building that uh, survived maybe because of the kind of material that it had. Certainly all these buildings that were built of wood, they would all, they, they all disappeared in the, in the earthquake. And then again, uh, the Japanese go on uh, rebuilding uh, very quickly uh, after 1945. And there's a, there's a massive kind of interesting impetus in 1964 when Tokyo also hosts the Olympics. And they do a lot of uh, new buildings, stadium, lots of highways, infrastructure. And I think related to what you were saying about these wards before, um, you know, the railways and the railway stations become also part of this polycentric, part of these nodes. So um, the infrastructure development uh, is also something that has been uh, rebuilt. But again, we've, you know, the, 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 there's been the 1990, 1995 uh, earthquake in Kobe, the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. And so this, this idea that uh, the the country has to deal with uh, these kinds of devastations. It's something that Ulrich Beck, the, the German sociologist, called risk society. We essentially now are living in the context of a risk society because of climate change, because of these earthquakes and so on. And, it, and it's really in the DNA of the Japanese and culturally, one of the kind of maybe slightly funny things is that the Japanese themselves have made, I don't know, something like 11 or 12 movies that are these King Kong type movies where the whole emphasis is on the destruction of the city. So not only do they live, I mean, in a way with the memory of this, but it's so present even within the, within the context of contemporary culture that there's been a lot of films 
made where the city itself is attacked and destroyed, mm. in, including some of its kind of, uh, you know, famous, uh, more recent uh, structures that get that get demolished in these uh, in these films. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's fascinating to hear you describe it, actually. And I think that there's a lot that the uh, Japanese can teach us, right? They're like the the phoenix. They rise time and time again out of the ashes and each time sort of rebuilding perhaps, um, you know, more more confidently than in the past. And when I hear you talk about this question of rebuilding um, in response to, you know, to natural or even political disasters, um, maybe it's also, um, and I think we were speaking about this off air before the show started, it's also a cultural phenomena, right? Because historically, the Japanese are building in wood. And unlike, let's say, the stone buildings of the West, wood, you know, weathers, to go back to your point, <laughs> and then needs to be rebuilt. So uh, in addition to... Um, the the response to the natural disasters i think it's also culturally embedded in the japanese in japanese society this kind of question of rebuilding um so so they have a lot to teach us um but i mean you you touched upon the question of the rail earlier and i think the rail in japan is certainly um uh kind of avenue for connectivity um, and mobility, but also plays a role in the idea of the collective and the public realm. So, you know, really, when we think of cities, we're always, in a way, oscillating between the individual private spaces and the collective public realm. Um, but Mosin, how would you describe the character of public space in a city like Tokyo? Because I think it's quite different than our ideas of public space in the West. It's true. On one level, you could say that Tokyo doesn't have any public spaces. I mean, they don't have any public spaces in the sense of Rome or Madrid or these cities. You mean like like the plaza? You like the mean? plaza, like... like the public space that is designated as a space of representation that is planned as the the space which is which signifies the public sphere. Of course, streets are uh, a very important uh, component of the public space uh, in the context of, uh, of Tokyo. As it has evolved in terms of new developments, the underground has become an important part of it because in, let's say, we look at a city like uh, LA and it's about expansion, it's about horizontality, it's about the sprawl into the sort of hinterland. Because of this question of uh, shortage of land in Tokyo, either it's gone uh, towards land reclamation going into the sea, or it has gone down. Uh, sometimes I've referred to this as the sectional city. In architecture, uh, we make drawings that are a little bit like the anatomical drawings. We make sections of buildings and cities. That means we study it in terms of a cut that goes above and below ground. And in uh, Tokyo, there are more and more buildings and developments where because of the because of the scarcity of land the development is going below ground so you would find uh, very you know special restaurants and public spaces essentially three stories four stories uh, below ground so this idea of public space uh, which is which is underneath uh, the surface of the city is is interesting and and in the 19 um 60s and 70s, uh, in particular, the railway companies and the railway stations, because they provide a very the sort of evidence of a large urban space that is interior, like an interior plaza, an interior public space. That's what railway stations 
uh, um, are essentially. And then these also provided um, the opportunity for um, gathering, for demonstrations, and um, for 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 people sort of coming together. So between the street and the spaces of the station, and you know these were really uh, the main spaces of of uh, of public representation in terms of in terms of let's say things like artistic practice or demonstration because uh, in some ways underground spaces are often privately owned and these privately owned public spaces are not exactly open to any form of of gathering uh, which might seem unreasonable to the owners of the of the land so even though they are public spaces they're not public spaces in the sense that uh, streets or railway stations have been and in fact uh, during the <clears throat> during the uh, 60s and 70s um, and early 80s there have been a number of very interesting um Japanese artists and art um, groups that have used this public space have used the street for example one group uh, developed their project of demonstration by by wearing white coats and cleaning the street and the cleansing and like these demonstrations about uh, anti-nuclear demonstrations or about the presence of the American army these the street becomes the main uh, the main space um uh, the 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 other space to mention in terms of public space is how how Tokyo, for example, has acquired parks over since the since the nineteen sixties, especially because um, Tokyo had a lot of military garrisons and that were you know occupied by the Japanese military. Then they were taken over by the Allied forces by the American military. And after the departure of the American um, military, because um, maybe the listeners know that the American army, the Allied forces, they stayed on in Japan um, um, after the war for some years. And then when they um, eventually uh, left, many of these garrisons uh, were turned into public parks. So parks became is a sort of slightly more contemporary version of public space that is a kind of recovery of military sites. Of course, some of those have also been turned uh, into big privately owned retail developments that the, the government has sold to uh, private companies like a development called Tokyo Midtown in the center of the city, which also used to be an old military um, garrison. And now those uh, privately owned public spaces are also providing new forms of um, public space on the ground level, uh, which are not dissimilar to what exists, for example, in the U.S. with, uh, you know, the, these large types of uh, um, developments like the Lincoln Center uh, type of, of, uh, of public space, which the Japanese developers have used as a kind of prototype in some way to create new large-scale urban developments. Do you, or do you get concerned um, about the increasing kind of blurring of the lines between public and private um, and that now, let's say, quote-unquote public space is being developed on private property? I guess the reason I asked that is we had a, a project ourselves in Miami uh, for an excellent developer, but we developed a public space, quote-unquote, 
on private property, which was very, very successful. But about a decade afterwards, it was it was basically um, removed um, because at the end of the day, it's private land. So I don't know. Would you have any thoughts about this? Do you do you worry about it? Yes. Uh, well, I think that's been really a, a, an important part of our research that we have been doing is really finding alternative strategies. The the, there are there have been some fantastic, very very good um, you know developers doing large scale development. But uh, part of the issue is that if you look at many um, many countries, not just Japan. I mean, this also is the case in the U.S. It's the case in many European countries. Is that the state, uh, the city, the city authorities have essentially uh, given up. Uh, in many instances, on on being responsible for um, urban development, uh, the physical aspect of urban development. I mean, they take responsibility for infrastructure, for roads, for subways, things like that. But actually, to think about the, their their participation in the in the physical evolution and development of the city, that they they in many instances this is uh, given to private developers and private developers. Um, uh, as 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 good as they 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 may be, I mean, their number one priority is to their company and to the way in which they have to increase the profits of those countries. So many of them can be quite responsible, but invariably, <clears throat> these types of developments, which are often called mixed use development, because they include some form of housing and retail and so on, but the the kinds of housing that are there are not many of them don't include the possibility of lower income people or middle income people. I mean, in the case of Tokyo, I, 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 I doubt if many middle income people could afford to live in any of these new types of uh, developments. So I think we should be, uh, we should be concerned. And really part of, part of the, the argument would be for the city to be more caring, to be more engaged, to be more involved in these in these types of developments, potentially through public-private par- uh, partnerships, ones that that uh, that uh, more strongly represent the interests of the broader public, rather than uh, you know primarily the the. The benefit of uh, private developers. I think that is an that's a really key topic that we face. And how can well, cities organize themselves in a way to think in that way? I think that's a challenge. Yeah, agreed. And probably the subject of a of, a, of an entirely uh, different show. So I'll have to invite you back, Mosin, so we can continue to debate that. But um, but I'm we are coming to the end towards the end. Um, here, but I, I just want to make sure you can say a few things about your upcoming book uh, titled Reinventing Japan um, that delves into an in-depth study of the topic of depopula- depopulation. Um, and what are the demographics of current day Tokyo? And what does this mean for the future of this and other Japanese cities? Um, just a slight tiny correction. I don't know that I would dare do a book called reinventing japan but it's called oh. revitalizing japan apologies mosin no, no, no. but it's a it's a more modest uh with all humility revitalizing <laughs> uh, and the concept of revitalization is really is a sort of um uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron because uh, uh 
as you said, Japan is going through a process of depopulation. And so it's not just let's keep adding, but if we add, we need to add in a very specific way to achieve revitalization. So uh, Japanese society is one of the societies that is um, the, uh, the, the largest proportion of the elderly. 30 or so uh, percent of the population is over uh, 65 years old. Uh, the um, life expectancy is uh, going up, you know, significantly soon, upwards of 85. And there is a very low birth rate and there is a relatively low uh, immigration, even though that's been increasing slightly. This means that the Japanese society, Japanese city, is going to have uh, more people living longer and fewer people who are going to be the working population. So this just doesn't just this doesn't work, and um, and so I think part of the challenge of revitalization is really to develop a distributive model of urban development where not all the projects are in Tokyo or Osaka, but maybe some of the smaller cities can also be revitalized in a way that will attract people um, from the different regions, and that we will have a more distributed idea of society. And with that, hoping that we'll be able to revitalize the country, revitalize Japan in the context of depopulation. And I believe the book I believe the book will be out this month so I'm looking forward to reading it. Um and I need to ask you my last question which I'm asking all my guests so maybe in about a sentence or two most and I'm curious what is your favorite city and why? I think Harry that's such a tough question to ask as the last question and then give me one minute. I so know there, I'm being unfair lots, here. There, there there are lots so but if I was uh if I was being super brief and didn't mention all the other cities of course the Japanese cities uh, you know, um, Tokyo and Kyoto in different ways. But, you know, one city that I've spent a lot of time with, and I think in many ways I could explain uh, why, if we had more time, is probably London, uh, in the sense that in many ways it also has many of the ingredients of what I would say is a decent city and that the environment produces uh, there's the certain possibilities of people, individuals leading a kind of decent life. Things are changing there as well, and it's not all uh, amazing and wonderful, but I, but I think this idea that cities could enable uh, a life of kind of uh, humility uh, is, uh, is something that I think London possesses to a great degree, and so I like it for that. Yes, agreed. Well, thank you, Moshlin, for your leadership in architectural education and for your meaningful contributions to the discipline. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Um, next week, I'm going to be joined by Reed Kroloff, the Dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology's College of Architecture, uh, where we will be speaking about the role of media and its relationship to architectural production and the future of architectural education. You can get all previous episodes of On Cities on iP Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to connecting with you again next Friday. Thanks again, Mohsen. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 